Let me have you turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me um, just uh, extend uh, myself and my wife uh, to you. Uh, We would be glad to interact with you concerning the text and concerning just your lives, get to know you. Please feel free to come up and say hi to us. Um, The demographic of how I look is a little different than the demographic here, so I should be easy to find on campus, Uh, but uh, please take the opportunity to do that. We are here, uh, we want time with family, but really the intention is to interact with you and uh, to be able to minister in any way that we can. Uh, We do count it a privilege uh, to be able to come and partner with IRBC. We pray for IRBC regularly. Uh, We love the camp, and we are thankful for the ministry. We have been the recipients, both my wife and I, uh, in different camps, uh, but from camp settings. And the opportunity to gather like this, to be able to have our kids instructed, to have your own hearts instructed by the word, uh, I think you all know the privilege it is to be able to share in a time like this. And so we uh, just want to, again, extend ourselves to you in that way. Thank you to all those who are behind the scenes and helping. Uh, Let me say that up front as well. And uh, just thankful, again, for the opportunity to connect. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And uh, what we'll do, Lord willing, uh, this morning and then in the upcoming evening sessions is just walk through Philippians 1 and 2. We're not going to, I can't dig too deep because I am already a long-winded preacher. And if I do that, I would, we'll be here a long time and then that will be your camp experience and I don't want that to be the case. Uh, But uh, today, this morning, I'd like to just unpack that first pericope, that first section of 1 down through verse 11. Uh, I titled this section of the text, A Pinch and a Dash is not enough. And so even as I was thinking through this, it is one of the ways that my mom uh, very wisely connected with me as a teenage boy. Uh, She would ask me to come into the kitchen, to interact with her, to help her, maybe make meals. Uh, If you know anything about Korean cooking, it's very involved. Uh, It's very, um, very much uh, ingredients and chopping and cutting and all of those good things. And so as a young man, I just took an interest in food. I love food. And my mom knew that, so she used that as an opportunity. Uh, my mom was the cook who, as she was cooking, would always leave a little sample of something. And then like she'd go like this and say, open your mouth. And then she'd drop it so she, you know, my mouth wouldn't get on her hands. But I would, like a baby bird, back then I was way smaller, right? I'd have my, uh, my mouth open. I would intake it. And, uh, and as I got older, I started to ask her, I said, how do you make these dishes? And she was like, oh, here, I'll show you. And then she'd make some marinade, and she'd, like, take soy sauce, and she'd go, like, you know, like this much. I'm like, my mom, how much is that? Well, you know, it's about this much. You know, some people cook like that. Some of you cook like that, right? How much salt? Well, just, like, this much, right? How many green onions? Oh, yeah, just this much. A pinch and a dash. And I think I entitled this section of the text, A Pinch and a Dash, and obviously not just a pinch and a dash, but the language of that it's not enough, and I think Pastor Dave has already set the table for us with our theme uh, from 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel calls you and I. Our faithful God really calls us to live solely for Christ alone. That if you have named the name of Christ, it is insufficient to just kind of sprinkle the gospel here and there. It may work for cooking, right? It does not work for our lives. That the God who calls us by his Son calls us to abandon but also utilize every good gift he's given to us to advance his cause and to make his name known. And that really is the call of Paul to the Philippian believers. You know the backstory if you've been in church, right? You, you've, you know that this was written probably around 51 to 52. By the time Paul's writing this, he's probably in Rome 10 years later. This is a church that is established, but Paul, again, can't be with them. Obviously, he's imprisoned. 
And as such, he desires to exhort them and encourage them to continue living for Christ alone. The Philippians in the book of Acts are the church that not only were partnering with Paul from the very beginning, but they gave once and again. This is one of those really encouraging letters. Uh, But yet in the midst of that encouragement, there is strong language that is used in Philippians to exhort us to even examine how we're living and why we are doing and living the way we ought to. I wrote here in just my, in my notes that really to say that we believe and not to live for Christ and his gospel is really oxymoronic. To take enough gospel that gives me a sense of security, but living unto myself is completely contrary to the gospel. Like, like I, lived in, I grew up in a home where at times I would say to my dad and mom who are first generation Christians, I remember saying to them, can you just be like every other parent? I would say that to them. And my dad's like, what do you mean? Well, like, they go to church, and they do all that stuff on Sunday, but they live for themselves Monday to Saturday, and it sure would be nice if you'd be hypocritical once in a while, because then I would feel more free to be hypocritical too. Like, I remember literally there were opportunities that I had, and not that I didn't indulge in sin, because I did, but there were opportunities that I had, and the Lord would just impress my mom and dad's face before my mental mind. I remember going, oh, man. Like, they really believe this. Like, when the gospel got a hold of the Buddhist, my dad, and when he got a hold of the nominal Catholic, like, the gospel didn't just save them for eternity. It saved them to radically change them now. And this is the testimony, even though the Philippians here, as we come to this text. So Paul here writes, Philippians 1, and following, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then from there he goes into this language of thanking God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making, uh, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from what time to what time? There's timing language there. From the first day until now, and he'll unpack what that prayer really is. And so as we come to this text of scripture, really the big idea for this morning is that our faithful God calls us, but he doesn't just call us, but he enables us to live solely for Christ alone. The subject that Paul here is going to address, the person that is the one who is dispensing the grace is the Father and the Son. Really, there's divine and there's Trinitarian language here in this first section of the text. It's all about what the Godhead has planned, what the Godhead has effected, and how it has radically changed the lives of the Philippian believers. And if you're here this morning and you know Christ, that's your testimony, right? It may not be in a prison. It may not be a Philippi, right? But that is the radical testimony of each one of us who by faith have trusted Christ. So let's unpack this section. Let me pray, and we'll just spend some time in the text together. Father, as we open our time this morning, even this week, Father, it could be very easy, even as the the theme for the week, digging deeper, diving deeper. Father, it could be so very easy to come to texts like Philippians and go, oh, I've heard this so many times. I've, I've probably, some people maybe even in here, have heard Sunday school lessons and, and sermons from this passage of Scripture uh, more than a dozen times. So easy for us to check out or think that this is somehow an easy and a familiar passage that we can run to. And we know what the text says. But by your grace and by your spirit, would you use the word this week to drive it deep into our hearts that you would stir the new affections that have been given in Christ Jesus and that the Spirit of God would point us once again 
to Jesus Christ, that we would see him who became sin for us, who knew no sin, that we would love him, as we have even been exhorted from 1 Corinthians 15, Father, that the resulting reality of being a beloved brother that is able to stand fast and be immovable is not because the strength is in us, because it is what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are actively at work doing. And so point us to Jesus, and in all of it, may your name be praised. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. As we come to this text of scripture, again, the big idea being that our faithful God calls us and he enables us to live solely for Christ alone. Really, you see the two realities in the life of the redeemed. First, uh, what will come out of uh, Paul and really uh, exhortation to the Philippian believers is that there ought to be a continual gratitude that is expressed to God for co-laborers in the gospel. There's lots of application we'll get to. Some of it you'll have to apply on your own. But I think this is actually a, a really helpful text to even speak of how we sometimes view not just our church and those within the body, but even other churches that may not be just like us because we're not building our kingdom, are we? We're building the kingdom of Christ. And so therefore, we are co-laborers if by faith we have trusted Christ. But not only that gratitude to God, but then loving investment in the lives of the believers that God has put in our path. And so this text is going to call us to those realities. But as I was reading through, there was a commentator that laid out just a, a little statement about this section. A summary that's really helpful that I'd like to read to you. Carson says this. He, said, I would, he says, I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service on some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. As I read that, what goes through your mind? You could be like, oh, yeah. Maybe you're sitting here going... This guy at the end of the row, he needs this message. I hope he's really listening. I hope that's not the case. I hope you resonate with even a statement like that because even as a preacher of the gospel, my heart resonates with that. Comfort and ease, like we sing, right? We'd rather have that bed of ease. But when the gospel of Christ has been confronting the sinner throughout the generations, it calls them not only to find saving faith in Christ alone, but to abandon all. The New Testament, Jesus will use such parables like there's land that has a treasure that the man found, finds. And what does he do? Does he kind of go, yeah, that'd be nice to have, own someday. He goes and he sells everything he has, right, to go and purchase the land. This is the call of the Philippians. And really, this is what they had been, by God's kindness, fleshing out. And so Paul begins in this section as we really lay out this truth of our God who's faithful and who's enabling us to live solely for Christ alone. He starts by fleshing out the reality in the life of the redeemed, a life of gratitude. To who? To God. For what? For these co-laborers. Like, aren't you thankful? Like, I know there's a massive clump of Anchor Baptist Church people here, right? I saw your shirts. I thought it was pretty cool. 
right? And then, then there's, but like think of how many churches are represented here, even in the auditorium. And I hope we don't look at one another with an eye of competition. Like if anything is maybe true within the Baptist circles that we've grown up in, there is oftentimes schisms over the most foolish of things. Paul here does not speak of this when he comes to the Philippian believers. He starts off this section of the text reminding the Philippians of who they are and who God has really ultimately made them, who even Paul and Timothy are. And so he starts off expressing gratitude to God, even in the very introduction. Uh, Actually, there's uh, quite a bit of discussion, and I don't have time to go into it, but this actually follows a very common Greek way to begin a letter like this, kind of like we do our emails, dear so-and-so, right? And then you, you ask the question, how are you? Most of the time when you write, how are you, like you do care, but you don't, right? It's just kind of a way to do it. Well, what does Paul do when he gets a hold of a construction like this and the common way in which they would have started letters? He takes it and he can never leave things alone, right? And Paul's awesome that way, right? He, he's gonna, and he's going to do this. Even when he talks about what he's praying for, he just erupts into praise and he tells you everything that he's praying for. Well, this is, this is Paul, and he starts at the beginning, and he introduces again, he, or not introduces, but he lays out this greeting by him as the writer, Paul, and then Timothy, who is a, and both of them, who are servants of Christ Jesus. I think Paul, again, is the one authoring, but Timothy is somebody that the Philippian believers would know who had a part in ministering to these individuals. They are both individuals. Again, this language of servant of Christ is used of them. But then he is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus that are in a particular location in this city of Philippi. He doesn't just name the people who are saints and who also are servants of Christ that are in Philippi, but he also adds the language of the overseers and the deacons. Again, I think this background information is really, really fun. And if you want to talk about it this afternoon, I'd be glad to talk about it. There's a lot in there. I don't think Paul is like addressing the body and then he's like separating the overseers and the deacons over here. I think he's including those specifically that God has placed within the leadership of the church at Philippi. And collectively together, they are individuals who have been made servants of Christ and they have, they're, they're ones who have been made saints the language of servant literally has the idea of bond servant. It has the language of ownership, that you are not your own if you have placed your faith in Christ, right? That, that, that right there alone could build the foundation of the rest of what Paul here is going to build. But he doesn't just call them servants, he calls them holy ones, those who are set apart unto God, right? And, and like, my dad would say that to me all the time. I can like, even at, a, at 43, I can hear my dad saying this. Why are you living like you belong to you? Now, he would say it in Korean, so I won't do that now because that won't make any sense to you. But that's what he would say. He'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you living like you belong to yourself? And I know what's going to come next. And if my siblings were here, they'd tell you what comes next. Did you die on the cross for your sins? Did you raise from the dead? I was like, oh, yeah. You know, and it's like this, this the truth that is laid out here by Paul is is so brilliantly done, obviously, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, reminding these believers of who God has made them in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just unpack that reality, but at the very end of that section, he speaks of the working of God. There's, again, divine language tied to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word and links both of them as the ones who are doing what? Again, you could just look at that verse 2 and just kind of over, like, just read it and then move on. But there's more here. The language of grace to you and peace, I think, is rightly translated in some other translations, that it is the Father and the Son who are the dispensers of grace. 
And as the Philippians and the believers have been the recipients of God's grace, what's resulted? Peace with not just God, but with Christ. And so again, divine statements are being made. Like, again, is your heart not being moved to gratitude already as we're just unpacking the introduction? Because this is who you are. Like, you were once an enemy of God, alien and, and foreign to the kingdom of heaven. But God in his kindness, if you are here this morning and you have by faith trusted in Christ, took you from that alien position and brought you into right standing and relationship with the divine God of heaven. Do you understand that? Like, if that's not something to cheer about, like, I know we're Baptists, I know we're independent, right? But, like, that is something to get really excited about. That's what God has done in and through the working of Christ. This is what God did in the life of Hoi Bo Choi, my dad, right, back in 1970-something. I don't remember what year. My dad was in his upper 20s, engineer, kind of rising star in Korean airlines, and the Lord just shattered his life. He showed him his sin, and then my dad went forward, and he didn't even realize it, but the same day that he heard the gospel for the first time, my mom followed right behind him, and my sister was behind uh, them. She was six. I was three. And I was sitting in a pew somewhere, and the lady, a strange lady beside me, was like, my mom realized when she turned around and saw my sister, thinking she was sitting with me, she turned around and she looked at me, and, and the story goes that she was like, oh, it's okay, I got your kid, right? And so I'm sitting there as the only unregenerated kid at that point, right? They all got one forward, and God, they got saved. Like, the Lord radically changed their lives. As an engineer, my dad sit, sat there for the first time hearing the, the truth of the gospel that was already declared to us out of 1 Corinthians 15 from Pastor Dave. He heard of his condition. He heard of his, his sin that separates him from God. He understood the law of God that would crush him. And yet in the kindness of the Lord, Christ came. Why did Christ die for his own sin? No. He was the sinless sacrifice that died in our stead. And as an engineer here, logically thought that all through, thinking about Buddhism and hoping good will outweigh bad, and then going, wait, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's going to be a forever process, Right? And yet God in his kindness opened their eyes. All three of them were redeemed. And so I was born into really a, a very young Christian home. And it, it, like I look back and 43 plus years now, or 40 plus years of life went from that event and how the Lord has radically shifted the Choi family. And I praise God for it. This is the Philippians testimony too. They're not Korean, right? But they are those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, that's the reality. And if you're here this morning, like, we have much to rejoice in. I'm not saying life's not hard. But don't forget who by the grace of God you have been made. That this is the reality of who you are. You are no longer those that are outside of the faith of God. You are no longer those who are, are not included within the people of God. But by faith, if you've trusted Christ, this is what he has done. He has made you a servant. He has made you a saint. Some of us, he has even made overseers, some deacons, right? Like, yeah, yeah, even your pastor and deacons are saints and servants. Don't forget that, right? I know sometimes they don't act that way, but be patient. God's at work, continually working in them. And, and what, what does he say? You have all been the recipients, if by faith you've trusted Christ, of the grace of God. And as a result, because of the grace of God and the grace of Christ that's been extended, you're now at peace with God. Like, this is what I actually wanted to just preach this two verses and stop but I'm trying to condense all of it, so we'll keep going, okay? But this gratitude that comes from, uh, from this, re this result. Look at what further Paul says in verse 3. He then moves into the language of gratitude. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, in verse 4 and 5, and always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul moves, right, from this expression of understanding what God the Father and Son have done, not just in the life of the Philippians, but even his own and in Timothy's life, and you know their testimonies. He moves from there into this expression of gratitude, and then he erupts into this praise. Like, I think sometimes uh, this is not the way that we pray. Maybe I could put it this way. This is oftentimes not the way that I pray. My prayers oftentimes can be very roped. It's just the thing that I need to do. And, and I find oftentimes taking passages like this, and I would even encourage you this week to do it, praying sections of scripture like this will aid you and I. It will open our eyes and remind us of things that become so commonplace for us. Right? Have, have you ever listened to a preacher preach and then he gets to the end of his message and you know he's gonna share the gospel with unsaved people? And what happens? Click. I've been saved for 40 years. I know what he's gonna do next. I know what he's gonna say. I know there's going to be like a song, probably five verses, right? Okay, We may have gone through all of those motions, but do you realize that we oftentimes click off the exact thing God wants to do, use, as Paul will say here, to remind us of all that the Father and Son have done? Think about that. Like this past week, we had a funeral last week. I get back from vacation. Thursday, we had a funeral for an elderly man who passed away from cancer. His wife was not able to be at the funeral. She was at Mayo uh, have, going through treatments on her own. While I was on vacation, I called her, we were talking, and she said to me on the phone, she said, Pastor, I need to, I've never publicly declared my love for Jesus. I need you to come over so that I can make a public profession and, 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 and declare my love for Christ. And I said to her, I'll, I'll come right now. Well, I, she goes, no, 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 I want to do it at home. So two days ago before I came here, I was in the home of an of a elderly lady in our church, um, and June accepted Christ as Savior. Like, it's never too late. I remember like sitting there going, like, this is the easiest laying out of the gospel that I've ever done. She actually took the hard right, because we were talking about funeral stuff and just about Arden, her husband, and, and then she just took a hard right. She goes, Pastor, remember, I told you I need to make a public profession of my faith for Jesus. I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't forget. <laughs> Laid out the gospel. She understood it. The Lord opened her eyes. She was made a saint and a servant of Christ. I think that's glorious. And here we are oftentimes in our churches hearing this truth over and over again. The Lord implements the Lord's table and we treat that as if it's just something that we're supposed to commonly walk through. Constantly the text of scripture reminds us that's not the way in which we ought to flesh out the reality of the gospel. Paul's gratitude moves him to remembrance. The language of remembrance here literally carries the idea of recalling something or to think about something. His thankfulness is accompanied by regularly or con regular or continual prayer, not just for himself, but for those that God had produced the work of the gospel in their lives. He continues to not only remember them, but as he prays and labors over prayer for them, and as he brings to remembrance all that God has done, that remembrance stokes gratitude and joy to God. I have found in my life, I don't know if this is true for you, that if I do not view other believers as those who have been the recipients of the grace that is found in the Father and the Son, those that are truly at peace with God, if I don't view them as co-laborers, it's easy to be critical of them, right? It's just like when you're sharing Christ with someone and, or, or you are interacting with maybe somebody, a coworker. And or, or uh, you're in a public setting and there's a person who's annoying and, and like they're in your way, they cut in line or whatever annoying thing that they do. It is a good way for you and I to remind ourselves that they're image bearers, right? When you do, it helps to humanize it. Like my wife helps me 
when I'm driving, right? She's like, hey, remember, they're an image bearer. <laughs> they're an image bearer who needs a rebuke, right? <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. That's not the point, right? To be reminded that they're an image bearer helps me to go, okay, it's okay, go ahead. You know I, know, I know I'm a Minnesota driver, so I drive really fast, but it's okay, you could go ahead of me, Iowa man, you know, that's like, we, we joke about that, right? The, and then down here, you guys joke about, any time somebody zips by you, you look over at the plate, it's a Minnesota plate, right? And it's easy to just kind of treat each other in that way. Paul doesn't do that. His gratitude to God constantly moves him to prayer and then gratitude not just to God but for the result of what God has done in the life of these that he has made co-laborers. And so he says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, verse 4, for you, all making my prayer with joy. And here's why, because of your partnership in the gospel and again, timing language here used from the first day until now. Is that again how the gospel fleshes out in your life? Is if I were to ask your pastors who are here, is that a common reality in the life of the body of the church? Like when they're at odds because there's a business meeting point that you don't agree on, do you not just pray for that agenda item on the, on the business meeting, but do you pray for one another? Reminding yourself that God has made them a co-laborer in the gospel? Like I tell my church all the time, if you look at the New Testament, there are two things that are really true about sanctification, and if you don't get it, you're not gonna grow. The two themes that come out is that we are united with Christ, which really Paul has already laid out in the first part of Philippians chapter 1 in the introduction. If you don't get union, you're not going to understand who you are in Christ Jesus. But the second reality of the truth, that life's not about you and me. And this oftentimes happens. We forget. Like we go outside of our minds. Like my dad would say to me, oh man, do you own your own life? Oh, it must be nice to own your own life. Did you die on the cross for your sins? Did you raise from the dead? Okay, just picture it in Korean. It's really sharp. <laughs> but it's really helpful to be reminded of all that we have because of what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are actively at work doing. He reminds them not just of his prayer for them regularly, but the resulting joy that God gives. But he uses this language of partnership. Let me just read what one commentator says, I think, about this word of co-laboring that's helpful. In the first century, however, right, this, com- this word of co-laboring, the word commonly had some kind of commercial overtone. So if, for instance, if John and Harry buy a boat, that's really, really good New Testament names, but if John, especially or Harry, but John and Harry buy a boat and they start a fishing business, they have entered into a fellowship, a partnership. Uh, Intriguingly, even in the New Testament, the word is often tied to financial matters, this author says. Thus, when the Macedonian Christians sent money to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem, they are entering into fellowship with them. We understand this when we do missions, right? But listen to what this author says. He says, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Let me read that again. The heart of true fellowship... The heart of a true co-laborer is a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. I find this in our church all the time, whether it's leadership meetings, whether it's on a corporate level, and there's times when we're at odds or we don't agree. Maybe it's the pastor and the deacon, maybe it's pastor to pastor, maybe it's pastor and deacons to laity. And again, if we are constantly bringing our minds eye through remembrance of what God has done through the working of the Son in, the life, in my life, but also in the person that's across from me. Man, it's helpful. I can't guarantee that they're going to change, but there's going to be something different here, right? And so all of a sudden, a pastor who might mandate something, and it's not really worth mandating, like if there's a bunch of people who 
don't think it's a good idea, it's pretty dangerous for a pastor to keep moving forward, right? What it does is it helps us to do this. And this is what Paul's saying about the Philippians. From the first time until now, this is what you have done. Even though you don't have me, this is not the richest church. These are people who not only gave once, but time and time again for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because they had a shared vision. They understood that Jesus Christ who died, was buried and rose again, also ascended. And he left behind not just the believers that were there, but those who were indwelt by the Spirit of God to take the message of Christ and to advance it, to cause it to spread. I think that's one of the things that has attracted at least my family and our church to IRBC camp. You guys come from all sorts of different backgrounds. And somehow you make it work. I don't see this often in my experience and upbringing. I get that we have different preferences to music or um, dress attire. But there is a gentleness and a willingness to go, let's hold it like this. Let's be willing to co-labor because it's not worth um, diminishing the most important things. But rather, let's advance the gospel of Christ. And so here, Paul lays out this language and his gratitude is expressed to God for what he is doing Really, in the last section, in verse 6, he lays out the truth, and I'm sure of this. Again, rooting all of this back, not to the faithfulness of the Philippians or Paul and Timothy or even the overseers and the deacons. But he says in 6, and I'm sure of this. What is he sure of? of, That he who began a good work in you, what will he do? He'll bring it to completion. When? The older I get, the more I want that when to be answered, right? At, right, he, he lays out there, at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul knows it's not done yet, but as God has again redeemed individuals, specifically here in the church at Philippi, God has continued to use them time and again. And as they're continued to be used as co-laborers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he calls to remembrance these Philippians. He prays for them. Prayer doesn't just uh, change your heart about circumstances. It changes your heart and mind about people. It helps me to go, oh yeah, that's a brother in Christ. He's a co-laborer, right? It helps me to go, oh yeah, we're not advancing his cause or mine. We're advancing the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ. And so Paul uses this language. He expresses the glorious reality of what God has begun in the life of the believer. And he doesn't just end with that, but he has this little participle that he ends at the end. And I am sure of this. What is he sure of? He, this confidence is that the God who began it is the God who will finish it. One author says this, this is almost a definition of what a real Christian is. The New Testament affords not a few examples of people who made professions of faith that were spurious, evidenced by the fact that they did not endure, they did not persevere. Not so the Philippians, because God is preserving them. Paul is convinced that they were uh, persevering. Paul gives thanks to God because he is entirely confident as he has watched the Philippians that what? That God did indeed begin a good work in them. There was no spurious conversion. And the God who begins a good work, what does he always do? He finishes it. Right? Isn't this true? It's actually so fun as a parent when God enables you to see your children make a profession of faith. Right? Like there is truly nothing like that as a parent. To see your kids understand their need for salvation and God opens their eyes. But you know what's more glorious than that? It's glorious. But the older I'm getting and the older my kids are getting, what's more glorious than that is to see the rich reality of what God has begun in that young person. 
But to see in the midst of all the flaws and the hormones and the circumstances, right, that God is continuing to work. That in, in all of your flawedness, even as Pastor Dave reminded us this, this, this morning, right, in this messed up world and in this, with messed up parents, that God is greater than even our own failures, that he continues to enact that which he has begun in the heart of the believer. And so Paul, again, reminds us of the faithfulness of our God who has produced this reality in the life of all genuine believers, that what comes out of us is a gratitude to God for those who he has made co-laborers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second reality this morning is this. In 7 through 11, he lays out the truth, not only is gratitude the expression, but investment is also what results. Loving investment in the life of other believers. Paul goes on in verse 7. Look at verse 7 there. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. Paul here uses this language. It is right for me. The word right there, this is again the correct response to the Philippian believers who are continuing to grow and continuing to co-labor alongside Paul by the working of God in Christ Jesus. You know, one of the things that I find in my life, I moved from um, Vancouver area, Canada, and then I did my um, Bible college years in Wisconsin, and for the first 10 years of my um, um, pastoral ministry, I was an assistant in Wisconsin. Uh, before I moved to Wisconsin, um, my buddy who was a Miami Dolphin fan, because I'm Canadian, so we all watched hockey, right? We didn't really watch football. I just got into football, NFL football. And so he said to me, well, you got to pick a team. Because if you're going to be an NFL fan, you got to pick a team. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I'm from Canada. We don't have football teams, or at least good ones. Not worth watching, right? And so, so I, remember, I remember just going, well, I'm going to go to Bible college in Wisconsin. So there's that team, Green Bay Packers. I'll just pick them. I'm picking them. Man, it was glorious because that was 1995. <laughs> if you're a Packer fan, 96 is a good year, right? I, I remember like literally, I didn't really know much about football and I went on extension church and I remember being at this church that I didn't know that well and all of a sudden on Sunday night, they didn't have Sunday night service. I was like, what? Like I'm, from a, pa I'm a pastor's kid. I'm like, this is not okay. And all of a sudden there's like all these TVs and they're like having this Packer party because the Packers are in the Super Bowl. And we're like, this is sacrilegious. You can't do this. But yet, in my heart, I was like, this is, something, this is cool. Because like, you know, there was so much food, and I was just so excited. And like, being a Packer fan is amazing. Like, it's been a great ride. I, I picked the right years, and I've been faithful to them since. And then seven years ago, the Lord opens up doors. There's lots of circumstantial, circumstantial things that happen. But he moves me to Minnesota. Like, the only thing worse than that would be to move to Illinois. Right? And I'm not saying that to be mean, but if you're a Packer fan, like... Like, we kind of don't like Minnesota, but they're like the annoying kid who's no good, right? But like the Bears, they're actually good. They've won Super Bowls. And like you really, like, it's like whenever the Bears play, is anybody other than, even if it's Vikings, than the Bears, right? Even if the Vikings are ahead in the standings, we still cheer for the Bears or for the Vikings. We don't want the Bears to win. And the Lord takes this Packer fan and he drops them in the Minnesota. And all, my whole church knows and I find out there's some common bond. There's like, oh man, you like the Packers too? You are from Minnesota? Oh, good choice, good choice. Don't go the way of your fathers. Yeah, right? And so like, there's all, there's all this common bond. And we love things that bring us together. We love things that are common bond. And I was like, I came seven years ago as a rabid Packer fan. 
But the more I prayed for my body, the more I started to grow in the gospel. I was like, it's not just that I felt bad for my Viking friends. Because there was some of that, right? It's pity. Oh, man, wide right. <laughs> it's pretty bad, right? But what actually happens here in the book of Philippians, he's, he's going, listen, there's all these things that we could have com- in common. But the reality of the gospel is that we don't have things in common. We have a person. And we have all been placed in this one who is the son, the one who has brought us life. And so Paul goes, it's right for me to feel this way about you. Like Paul is, has planted churches. He's planted these churches. But it's not like he said years and years of ministry alongside these people. It's not like childhood friends that they grew up with that have all these things in common. Paul's a Jew who got saved. These Philippians are mostly Gentile. And yet when Paul looks and he looks through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he goes, this is the right response. This is how my affection should be stirred. Because you and I have been those who have been made, and I love the language here, we have been made partakers. We have been made partakers with one another. The language here of partakers has the idea of those that have been made participants. One lexicon said it implies fellowship or sharing with someone or in something. And oftentimes it's tied to not just something, but something that you do together. Right? In the secular usage, it was used of business associates, uh, but even more intimately in the Greek, and it would have included the language of marriage and friendship. I'm going to give you resources throughout the week, so if you want to write something down, this would be a good resource to write down. Read Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Okay? It's so good. Oftentimes in our circles, we have a tendency to elevate marriage, which is good and is glorious, but we have a tendency to diminish friendship. And what Lewis does is he takes friendship and he elevates it as one of the good means that God has given. Read it. It will stir your heart. It will give you a heart for the singles in your church, right? The ones that God has not stewarded marriage. Like, why do they have to be second-class citizens? You're not, right? You too have been made a partaker in Christ Jesus. You participate together. And then he doesn't just talk about the fact that they were willing to continue to partner with him when things were good. But what does he say? Both in my imprisonment and in times when I'm not imprisoned. Like, what would you do if the guy that you were missionary and you were supporting all of a sudden is thrown into prison? And then it has implications that could incriminate you. Well, guess what the Philippians do? He tells us, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Why? For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense of, and confirmation of the gospel. Then he calls God into witness in the next section. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all, with the affections of Christ Jesus. That's not a human ability to yearn for people that you don't have a ton of stuff in common with. Right? This is a divine ability that God has given to Paul and and to Timothy as God has brought them uh, into the faith, as God has enabled them to see who they have been made in Christ Jesus. Like this ought to be true in every one of our local churches. I hope it's not like begrudgingly that you go to church. I hope you go praying for one another, reminding yourselves of all that God has done. And as you bring to mind all that God has done in the life of these individuals, you're, you're erupting with joy that God has enabled each of us to be a partaker in Christ Jesus. That we gather together to accomplish a common mission. That we're not championing our own causes. We're advancing the cause of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of this letter. I got... If nothing else, and a speaker shouldn't say that, but if nothing else, you walk out of this place going, man, Lord, I need to pray this way 
for the body that you've called us to be a part of. It's so easy to make all of these other things the reasons why we like this church or don't like this church. Pray for the churches that preach the gospel that aren't like you in your city. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. We have a history. Who cares? Who cares? Like, I'm a Wisconsin, like, Packer fan ministering in the heart of Minnesota. And you know what? When it comes to Vikings, Packers, that goes out the window really fast. I don't care. Because my buddy over here and my buddy over here who love the Vikings, it doesn't matter. Like, I feel a little bad for them. I have told a couple younger kids that are closer to me, you know, you should probably talk to your dad. I know he's grown up a Bear fan, but just go, man, is it okay, dad, if I just go my own way on this one? <laughs> Life might be a little easier, you know? You pick a different team. It's helpful sometimes, but in all reality, this is what Paul's saying. He's going, this is what God has done. And then he continues in 9, and he says, because the contents of his prayer doesn't just... Um, uh, start with this language of their love for Christ to continually grow. But in 9 and 10, he says, and it is my prayer, again, that your love may abound more and more, right, that their love would grow for Christ, but that they would grow in knowledge and discernment so that they may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless, again, for the day of Christ, this eschatological language. So the content of his prayer, this, the, really the central theme is that their love for Christ would grow that their knowledge of Christ will deepen, that ultimately they, were, they would prepare to see Christ as, he, as his return is drawing nearer. What a great prayer. What a great prayer to stir up his own heart, not just for the advancement of the gospel, to be reminded of what he has been saved by and, and for, but also to stir his own heart for the people that God has placed within the assembly, the church at Philippi, that these who should have no similarity and union and common bond have been brought together in Christ Jesus. One author talks about this, and he says about this section of the content. He says, the kind of love that Paul has in mind is the love that becomes more knowledgeable. Of course, Paul is not thinking of just any kind of knowledge. He's not just hoping that they will learn more and more about nuclear physics or sea turtles. He has in mind the knowledge of God. He wants them to enjoy insight into God's words and ways and thus to know how to live in light of them. This really is what Paul is doing. And as he does earlier on, he does it again, as he does in 1 Corinthians 15, he's preparing all of these who have been made saints and servants of Christ for that coming day, right? Because there will be a day when there will be no more need for us to advance the gospel in the world that we live. That's coming to an end. But that time is not yet. So keep praying for one another. Keep reminding yourselves of who each of you have been made in Christ Jesus. What results at the very end of this section is as he thinks of the day that they're preparing for to meet Christ, he says that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness and that righteousness comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So the question I have for you is this. The question I have for you is, one, do you know Christ the Savior? I would be amiss if I did not ask you that question. Have you, by faith, been the recipient of the grace that has been dispensed by God the Father and God the Son through the working of the cross work of Jesus Christ? If you are here and you don't know Christ the Savior, what a great place to come and talk to someone to be able to know that your sins are forgiven. Don't leave this week without having that resolved. If you're here as a believer, the question is this. Is this how you pray? Does your prayers like this stoke the fires of remembrance of what and where you should be, but by the grace of God? 
does it also stoke the passion and the love with which you need to move towards one another? Do you see each other as partakers, as co-laborers? Or do you see that person that's in the church that doesn't uh, take your position, that is really annoying, as someone who's an obstacle to you getting what you want? The gospel here of Jesus Christ, by the words of Paul, is reminding us that we were not saved by our own, own doing, but we were also not saved unto our own selves. Think of what my dad would say. Oh, must be nice to live as if you own your own life. Oh, must be nice to have died for your own sin. Oh, must be nice to have raised from the dead. And then something like this would ensue. Oh, it didn't. That didn't happen. So why are you living as if living for Christ and his gospel is simply sufficient for a secure home in heaven, but it doesn't really impact what you live for now? The text is saying a pinch and a dash, it's not enough. If Christ has truly died and rose again, if by faith we have been placed in the Son, we are those who have been made co-laborers and partakers. There's work to do. Let me end with this illustration and we'll finish our time. I've been pastoring now for 17 years, um, 10 years as assistant. This has just finished my seventh year. My mom and dad, uh, my dad's a pastor, retired pastor. And my dad and mom, when I call them quite regularly, at the end of the conversation, my mom would say something like this to me. She would say, Sam, you sound tired. So it's a mother, right? What a kind mother. I'm like, yeah, mom, I'm a little tired. Now, we've been playing this game for 17 years. She goes, are you really sleepy? I'm like, oh, mom, I'm so sleepy. Are you getting enough sleep? Not really. Sam, are you losing weight? That's always in there too, right? She's like, that will help you. I know, mom. Thank you, mom, for that reminder. We have this conversation. It, it kind of varies, you know. We kind of take them twists and turns. My mom and I, we have that kind of relationship. And at some point, my mom would be like, are you really tired? Oh, I'm so tired, mom. I'm so tired. Like, oh, you need a break? I'm like, oh, mom, mom I need a break. And my mom would go, You'll get a break someday. I'm like, really, Mom? When? Well, when you die or when Jesus comes. There's work to do. <laughs> Christian, are you looking for that bed of ease? Like, we're all, we, are we waiting for retirement so that we can just, like, sail into the sunset? I see too many retired people checking off their bucket list that they never had when they were 15, but they said that they had. What are you doing? Don't waste your life. The gospel of Christ reminds us, really through a positive text, that we have been made co-laborers and partakers. You're tired? Good. You're exhausted? Good. You need some rest? Yep. It's coming. When you die or when Jesus comes. But until then, let us labor for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, help us. Even as we unpack the rest of the text coming up here in chapter 1 and 2, Remind us afresh that we are not those who died in our own stead, but by the kindness of the Lord. You continue to remind us by the working of the word of God and by the spirit of God that it is Christ Jesus, the eternal son who left heaven's glory for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
We are no longer those who live unto ourselves. The only strategy, even as we will talk through in the upcoming sections, to deal with sin, the one strategy that God gives is kill it. And yet, Father, we find in our own hearts propensity, a desire for nominalness, a desire for doing just enough so that I look good. Living in a manner that my home in heaven is secure, but right now, I kind of want to live for me. Father, eradicate that by the gospel. Aid us to afresh be reminded of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and their working, their plan, even as we have sung, their plan since eternity past for the Son to come, to give life to all those who would believe in the eternal Son and put their faith in him. But then, Father, enabling us not to live unto ourselves, but as new creations, as new creatures, to live unto him who has called us. Remind us of that truth. But then help it not to just be a mental remembrance. Help it to flesh out in the manner in which we live even today. Help that to flesh out in the family dynamic as families spend time together. Help that to flesh out as the kids are playing the different games over here. Help them not to live unto themselves as if them winning this game is going to be some stellar thing, some accomplishment. It's just four square. It's just squinny ball. Help us to use those things rather for your purposes so that your name would be made known so that Christ and the gospel would be made known so that all of this would redound to your praise. For it's in Christ's name we pray.